If you're younger than 35, you'd be forgiven for not knowing what WordPerfect or Lotus123 are. Long before there was Google Docs and longer still before there was Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel, there was a dominant word processing program called WordPerfect and a dominant spreadsheet program called Lotus123. Those products are long gone and not necessarily because Microsoft built better programs with Word or Excel. In the 1990s, Microsoft controlled over 90% of the market for operating systems for desktop computers. And through their relationship with PC manufacturers, they made the purchase of their competitive word processing and spreadsheet programs really easy. The result? Word and Excel became so dominant that WordPerfect and Lotus123 no longer exist. A few years later, Netscape built a dominant web browser. Then Microsoft developed a web browser that they distributed with their operating system called Microsoft Explorer. The result? Netscape was sold in what felt like a fire sale to AOL. Today, there's no Netscape. This story repeats itself over and over again. Real Networks developed a media player called RealPlayer. And then Microsoft developed a competitive media player that they tied to their operating system. In spite of a billion dollar settlement, Real Networks is no longer around. The conclusion? If you control the operating system, you control the keys to the castle. The European Union levied a suit against Microsoft for what it alleged were its monopolistic practices. The suit lasted over 10 years. During that time, Microsoft was able to use its operating system to thoroughly dominate almost every application it built. Ultimately, it was the web that fostered a new cloud-based platform where Microsoft's competitors had a clean start to offer compelling productivity tools and other apps that began to break the monopolistic power of Microsoft. For example, think for a moment of the momentum of Google Apps relative to the momentum of Microsoft Office. If you're still not convinced of the power of the operating system, think about the power Apple has with its App Store or the power Google has by operating the Android operating system. These are companies that write the rules in today's modern smartphone and tablet-driven world. Have you ever tried to buy a book through Amazon's Kindle app on the iPad? You can't. That's because Apple makes the rules and has said to Amazon, if you sell a book through your app on an Apple device, you have to pay us a percentage of each sale. So Amazon will only sell you a book through a web or mobile browser so that Apple can't put their hand in the till. If you think the battle for an operating system is only limited to computers, smartphones, and tablets, you'd be overlooking Tesla, Google, and others who are working on building an operating system for the car. And in what could be the most important battle for years to come, most of the world's largest and most important technology companies are battling for supremacy in what will become the operating system for the home. You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores current industries that are ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to explore. This is the fifth episode in a series about the future of the smart home and my prediction that in the near future, the smart home will change the way you live. In the last episode, I spoke with some of the biggest companies in smart lighting and explored why the winner of that space is far from obvious. In this episode, I'll talk with Amazon and Wink about who's going to win the operating system race for the home and also explore the role of artificial intelligence within the home.
There's something very unusual about the evolution of an operating system for the home. In the case of the computer, we literally couldn't have any functionality without the operating system. If we had no Windows or before Windows DOS, then there would be no Microsoft Word. On the smartphone, if we had no iOS, there would be no Snapchat, no Android, no Tinder. Except in the home, we had Nest and Honeywell smart thermostats before we had Wink or Apple's HomeKit. I imagine you could say that there needed to be some kind of an operating system on the thermostat to run Nest, but in truth, there was no central operating system for the home when Nest launched. I spoke with Cliff Rosen, CEO of Whole Home Control, a company focused on design and installations for smart homes at the highest end of the residential market. He offered an interesting framework for a few true providers of operating systems in the home and contrasted those with the ad hoc operating systems now being offered by the large technology companies. You have to look at two philosophies of where the intelligence in, in the smart home comes from. So one philosophy says you have to have a centralized platform. Through that platform, uh, all smart devices in the home communicate with one another, and that central platform choreographs uh, the behavior of all the devices. And the solution providers for um, uh, for that type of architecture are, are relatively few. It's the it's the restaurants and control fours and savants. Um, alternatively, you have the distributed or the IoT philosophy or architecture, and that's where everybody kind of th throws out their own device, and there are all kinds of sort of ad hoc glues. For example, I would call uh, uh, Apple's HomeKit technology an ad hoc glue that try to weave together a seamless experience, but by and large, there is no central brain that reigns supreme and choreographs and orchestrates the behavior of these devices. If I can download an app to control my music and another app to control my blinds, then why would I need an operating system? The answer is twofold. First, the argument goes, a user will eventually find it easier to control all of their settings from a single app on their phone than from multiple apps on their phone. This is probably the weaker of the two arguments. The second, more compelling answer is that your home eventually needs to function more like a symphony than a stage for solo artists. In other words, applications made by different vendors are going to need to work together to achieve a result that they couldn't achieve individually. For example, instead of wanting to set my alarm on my Sonos, which is an individual setting, or to open my blinds remotely in the morning, which is another individual setting, I'd like to create a scene called Wake Up. First, the alarm goes off, and not just a shrill bell, but a song I've pre-selected. Then my blinds rise. Then the coffee is made so that it's ready by the time I get to my kitchen for breakfast. The only way that you can do anything at scale is if there's consistency, is if you can implement repeatable processes. And the only way that you can implement repeatable processes is if there's homogenization of technology and standards. And right now we have anything but homogenization of smart home standards. We're still on this stage where products and technologies and, and architectures are popping up left and right. And everybody's, you know, some people are trying to shortcut the fact that there aren't established architectures and standards and other people are trying to create the architectures and standards, but it's like the wild west. Let's try to imagine how an ideal operating system for the home would work if it were built in the right order. Actually, this doesn't require too much imagination because we can look to companies like Control4, Crestron, and Savant that have already built incredibly tight integrations in an order that makes sense. All of the home's functional applications 
are accessible from their interfaces, and it's their software that serves as the front end for controlling lights and blinds and air conditioning and TVs in the homes in which they're implemented. In the case of Crestron or Control 4, there is literally a computer running in the home, and there is no light that turns on, there is no uh, uh, HVAC zone that changes temperature, uh, there is no uh, audio zone that starts playing without this central brain knowing about it, and also the central brain being able to control it, such that programming in this central brain can control all of it and control all of it in an interrelated way. Just so I understand that, so if there's a Lutron switch or if there's a, a lighting solution, I don't communicate with the native app made by that provider to manipulate the light. I change the light setting through Control 4, is that right? That's exactly right. And if you happen to change it, the light from a keypad instead of through the Control 4 app, still the same. That keypad is communicating with the Control 4 central brain. So the central brain knows exactly what just happened, knows the state of all devices, and allows for this glorious uh, coordination to, uh, to play out. Historically, there have been a few problems with these types of pure implementations in the home, which make them only appropriate for the wealthiest homeowners. First, they're really expensive. It's not unusual for a Control 4 system to cost in excess of $10,000, and the group configuring the system can charge twice that amount, or more. Then there's the bigger problem. Most people purchasing smart home devices aren't ordering every conceivable piece of functionality under the sun. Instead, they're starting with just a smart thermostat or just a smart doorbell. This makes an operating system overkill. As a result, most individual device makers have sold their products direct to the homeowner and provide a software application that allows people in the home to control the thermostat or the doorbell. So you might like the voice activation offered by the Echo or Google Home, but you have no need for more complex functionality like the creation of a condition where you program, if the alarm goes off, open the blinds. When you consider the creation of smart home devices from this perspective, it no longer seems like the big technology companies have been sleeping. Instead, they look like they've been waiting for the device makers to get enough traction in smart homes with their products before stepping in to provide the glue to pull it all together. Still, Cliff is pretty critical of the implementations that the Amazons and Googles of the world are taking relative to the pure operating systems developed by Control 4 and Crestron. If you ask me, those solutions are sort of trying to find the shortcut and they're trying to get to being the, the glue or the operating system for the home without establishing the right architecture and protocols and standards. And so it just winds up being a pseudo centralization that's slapped on to everything that's in the home and it's a hack. It might be a way to get penetration uh, because it's a much lower entry cost, but I think it's far from uh, the ideal architecture. And eventually, slowly, but eventually, the industry forces are gonna cause a much more elegant architecture to emerge. It's almost as if we collectively set up the home as a petri dish for a new environment for computing and then did everything backwards. First, we built the applications. 
Everyone from Honeywell to Philips Lighting to GE Lighting to Deco to Keenhome to Ring to August offered their own devices and apps, which all featured their own user interfaces. Once these devices gained adoption, the big technology companies, Amazon, Google, Apple, and Samsung, showed up to the party. In the case of Microsoft, they're still getting dressed and have yet to release their home operating system at the time this episode was released. The arrival of the tech giants begs the question, how do you build an operating system when all of the applications are already built? One answer is not to call your offering an operating system, which is actually the path these companies have taken, even though an operating system is what I think they all aspire to become. I'm going to refer to them as operating systems going forward. These operating systems all incorporate, or will shortly incorporate, the conditional statements I referred to above. If your drop cam senses motion outside of your house at night, it should tell your Philips Hue lighting system to turn on the lights in the kitchen to make it look like you're awake so that it scares off potential intruders. The integrations today are still in order of magnitude less complex than they promise to be in the future. Here's Cliff's take on where all this goes including what sounds like next-generation operating systems for the big tech companies. Here's what I think is inevitable. You take all of the technology systems in a home, that's the lighting and the audio and the video and the HVAC and the motorized shades and the irrigation, etc. And they are developed from the ground up to be intelligent uh, through standard APIs. They could report on what they're doing. They could be told what to do and... Uh, when a house is built from the very start, um, that capability is baked into all of these devices using certain standards. So now the groundwork is there for the technology maestro to step up and do the orchestration, whether it's something as simple as a button is pushed at night and so all the lights turn off or something as complex as, hmm, I know that John just came home. I could tell from the expression on his face that he had a tough day. So I'm going to start playing some relaxing music for him and I'm going to start and I'm going to uh, start boiling a cup of tea. Now, the second part is, well, what does the, the maestro of these devices look like? And yes, I think ultimately the maestro of these devices is a Watson. It's far more sophisticated than what a control for or Crestron programmer can accomplish with the programming models of those platforms. It's far more uh, uh, advanced than what Wink or If This Then That uh, development can accomplish in the IoT world. Um, and so you have these two layers. And yes, the, the ultimate uh, orchestration does happen through artificial intelligence uh, and uh, uh, something very much like Watson. The first platform to use this glue approach to building an operating system and gain traction was Wink. The company grew out of a unique crowdsourcing platform called Quirky, which I mentioned in an earlier episode. Quirky was a crowdfunding platform with a twist. People submitted product ideas, which if selected by Quirky, would be produced and sold by Quirky. Wink was launched to address the large number of projects that were submitted to Quirky in the smart home space. While Quirky went out of business, Wink thrived. I spoke with Kit Klein, who is the VP of Engineering at Wink at the time of our interview, about the history behind their platform. He has since left Wink. Back when Wink launched, we had noticed that there was a, a gap in the smart home market. So every device that came out had its own app, had its own experience, and uh, realized people were starting to have app fatigue. You know, you needed to have uh, a separate experience for every single device you put in your home. 
So Wink really arose as a way to unify all your favorite products from trusted brands underneath one simple unified experience. When you say a simple unified experience, so people understand, you could put your lock on the network, your lights on the network, your blinds on the network, but they were all represented on your phone as a separate application. And so what you're saying is the initial vision of Wink was that all of these applications would live inside of a Wink application? That's correct. And I'd say more of all those products and the way you interact with them would live under the single Wink application. Was the value proposition that they were all just in a folder together and the UI, you, you tried to unify the UI, if you, if you will, or was the initial value proposition from its inception that these products uh, are meant to interact with one another? It, it was definitely a mix. So we, we did go after the, the friction of having multiple apps. And we wanted to solve that by providing, you know, a single app. Um, also, most of those apps were not very good user experiences. So Wink really focused on putting that user experience and that consumer first experience out there. Um, now, any smart home platform, it's kind of become table stakes. And, and even at that time, it was table stakes to support the, the automation, the interaction between products. So I, I think that was added benefit. But the, the initial problem we really went after was bringing really good trusted brands and products together under that kind of one umbrella um, application. I wanted to understand what Wink's vision was for the smart home. Initially at launch, we were looking to be that umbrella platform, right? That single app that tied all your devices together. We accomplished that pretty quickly. About eight months after launch, we had pretty much captured every um, compelling, popular you know, brand and product um, within our application. And then we started focusing more on scaling out the functionality of the app, making it something that, you know, users could use to really realize their vision of a smart home they had. And I, I think we've accomplished that mission. And now we're starting to think about how do we go after solving specific problems or use cases in the home in very simple and elegant ways. So it's becoming much more focused on solving problems for users. The first phase of get those integrations and really bring trusted products and brands together. The second phase was to build out functionality apps so that users could kind of build and realize a smart home they want in terms of capabilities and the experience. And, and what's an example of that functionality that they would want to build out? So an example would be, we call them robots, but the interactions between products. So when, when Wink launched, it had a, a really elementary rules engine. Um, since then, we've layered on more and more capability and functionality in terms of how you can configure devices to interact with each other, whether it's based on time rules, based on multiple devices as inputs to outputs in other devices. We've just kind of scaled that up to support a more powerful experience. The use case I gave before, for example, blinds interacting with lights or lights interacting with a lock, that's what you mean in this second phase. That's right. And the third phase? The third phase is more focused on solving very specific problems for people. So a good example of that, we recently launched what we're calling Wink Bright. That's a Wink Hub, right? That's the, the brains of our system that sits inside the home. And it comes with two light bulbs. And those light bulbs are prepared to the hub. So you literally take this thing out of the box, you plug the devices in, everything works. Um, on top of that, we've added some services that go along with those physical products. Um, one is called Moonlight. So basically with a, a single toggle, you now have a feature where at dusk it turns on those light bulbs 
So it would typically be used on like a front porch application. And then at, at midnight, it turns them off. That's not a very complex automation for some of our power users. But when you think about the masses and people who are just being introduced to home automation, having that uh, ability to have that prepared, out-of-box, very nice setup experience, coupled with a way to realize what would be a, a moderately advanced automation to some of our power users is what we're talking about when we say we're focusing on very specific use cases to address problems. Do those light bulbs, they communicate directly with the hub? There's no switch? You don't require a switch to operate those light bulbs? That's right. Each one of those light bulbs has a radio in it, and it can talk directly to the hub. When Kit talked about the light bulb, it sounded to me like Wink would eventually be directly competing with its partners. It's really interesting. So on the one hand, Lutron's one of your partners. On the other hand, you're building out capabilities on the lighting side that would put Lutron out of business. Uh, I don't know if it would put them out of business, but I think it, it provides a, a lower friction starting point for somebody just approaching home automation. Lutron still has a, a phenomenal product and you, know, you can use their products to build out and a really amazing experience. Flextronics bought Wink in 2015 for $15 million. In July of 2017, Wink was acquired by Will I Am's company, I Am Plus, for $38.7 million. Well, I don't imagine Lutron is too worried about Wink. I think they and every other device manufacturer in the home should be worried about Google and Amazon. Google implements their operating system on Google Home, a voice assistant that was released in November 2016. When you speak, Google Home recognizes your commands and executes them, whether it's searching the web or turning down the temperature in your home. While it doesn't offer scenes like wake up or home from work that would affect multiple smart devices according to your preferences, it can help you manage your daily schedule with the command, tell me about my day. Google has exposed connections called APIs for developers of other devices to integrate their devices into Google Home. This is where you can think of Google as the glue of the smart home. But there's a wrinkle in all of this. In 2014, Google bought Nest. So while Google Home will ostensibly work with all smart thermostats, they own the second largest brand in the smart thermostat space. Nest subsequently bought Dropcam, which is one of the largest security camera companies in the IoT space. Now Nest offers a smoke detector. Shortly after the interviews in this episode were conducted, Google announced they would be releasing their own smart doorbell. If you're a maker of blinds or air purifiers, you have to wonder, where does it stop with Google? And what about Amazon as a threat? The best analogy to describe the relationship between Amazon and third-party developers might be their third-party marketplace that Amazon offers for selling products. When you go to Amazon.com, you can buy products where Amazon is the retailer or where third parties are the retailers. Amazon, by virtue of their web traffic and their ability to invent and ship products, is the easiest place for merchants to market and sell their products. It's a great service that Amazon provides, except there's a long history of accusations about them using the data they're collecting regarding the performance of third-party merchants and then white-labeling their own products to compete with those merchants. If you go to Amazon to buy sheets, one of the highest-rated sheets is by a company called Pinzon. I own Pinzon sheets and think they're fantastic. They also happen to be wholly owned by Amazon. You have to wonder how many other products they've developed or are developing and how many more they'll continue to offer until they dominate the other categories. 
The other companies I spoke with for this series more or less said they weren't afraid of Amazon. If they were, they didn't let on. Kit Klein was one of the few who openly acknowledged the threat. I think Amazon is very good at using data to drive every decision. They, they know exactly what's selling, what's not, and probably where to invest their dollars in making their own devices. So what does that mean for the future of all of these companies like Sylvania and even GE? I mean, do we have to, is, is Amazon making refrigerators in the future because they've integrated refrigerators into their platform? I wouldn't want to bet against Amazon on any of those fronts. I don't think anything is really off limits for them. I do think the future for those other companies you talked about is probably going to rely on them banding together and, and pushing for a platform which has everyone's kind of general interests in mind. Amazon's operating system is implemented through Echo, another voice assistant that came out in June 2015, a whole two years ahead of Google Home. If you don't have an Echo, you've probably seen the ads or overheard people talking about them. Alexa, what's the weather today? Alexa, please reorder Raisin Bran cereal for me. Alexa, play Beethoven. In April 2017, it was estimated that the Echo dominated the smart speaker category with 70.6% of consumers choosing it over rival Google Home or other smart speaker options. Out of all the big players, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Samsung, only Amazon agreed to speak with us for this podcast series. The others declined to be interviewed, but if any of them are listening, we'd love to add your perspective to this exploration. I spoke with Daniel Rausch, VP of Smart Home at Amazon, to hear how Amazon envisioned the future of the smart home and their role in shaping that future. Smart home as a segment is a, a business that's been about to take off for about 40 years. With the next rev of interface and uh, control around the home. Uh, you know, predictions are made that soon we'll be in a Jetsons-like future with respect to things you can do around your house. Um, it's obviously not turned out to be true, I would argue, basically until now. The last version of that story was that uh, you'd come home to your house, you would pull out your smartphone, and you would control everything. But it turns out that fishing in your pocket and unlocking your phone and finding the right app from this heterogeneous world of applications and then getting into the app and then finding the right device and then clicking a button is actually dramatically more complex than walking over to a light switch and turning it on. So that was kind of where we were when Alexa arrived. And I think what you're seeing now with, uh, with Alexa is that it's the first time that the smart home, as it were, uh, is truly simpler than the world that was there before smart home. So Alexa, for us, is this great simplifier for customers. It takes the heterogeneous world of devices around your house. You don't have to care who made it, where you bought it from, who installed it. Hopefully you've installed most of them yourself, and we've made that easy. And you can talk to Alexa and, uh, with great simplicity ask her to do things for you. So if you come home to a dark house, you ask her to turn on the lights, your hands are full. That's actually dramatically more functional and dramatically simpler than walking over to the light switch. And we're, we think, just on the front edge of a sea change uh, in Alexa transforming the way we think about uh, controlling uh, our environment and the world around us uh, with her as our partner in that. 
The possibilities for artificial intelligence to run your home seem endless, and Daniel hinted that we've only just seen the beginning of Alexa's capabilities. Alexa is in the cloud, and we, you know, we made very conscious decisions early to make sure that Alexa could keep getting smarter. And so that's the, the primary kind of technology metaphor that we use when we talk about what Alexa is, so to speak, as, as a technology. I think of it less in the operating system metaphor, which uh, operating systems, they're very powerful, but they demand a high degree of interaction from their customers. I think of Alexa as um, draining a lot of that complexity away and doing very complex tasks with, you know, hopefully increasingly terse uh, input. So something like Alexa, good morning, is for me farther from the operating system metaphor than from the assistant metaphor. If Alexa is not the operating system in the home, what would be? I mean, if we if we think of the home as evolving to a um, intelligent environment, what would be the the operating system then if it's not Alexa? We may just be mincing words at that point. I do think, I, I just think of it as more of an assistant metaphor because in working backwards from the customer, we're very focused on that simplicity of that interface and draining away the complexity. So if your question is about how the technology works, yes, we want Alexa to along with our third parties, take on a lot of that complexity and drain it away from the experience. So maybe in your metaphor, that is the operating system part of Alexa. I think about the way Alexa presents herself to a customer and the way the customer interacts as just being simpler than the way we think about an operating system. Daniel didn't provide a clear blueprint to Amazon's future plans, or even whether he saw Amazon building their own line of smart home devices. Ironically, after this interview was conducted, Amazon announced an indoor security camera called CloudCam, which looks remarkably similar to Google's DropCam, except it's branded by Amazon. In our interview, Daniel was focused on expanding the partnerships that might integrate Alexa. I think that smart homes definitely represents uh, a segment where there's a high degree of change that's going to create disruption uh, for some people engaging in a certain business model versus others. And a lot of that will be around invention. Our goal is to not have to pick our way through any of that. It's to make it easy for uh, companies that are inventing to adopt voice as the control uh, that they want to afford customers for the home and make that incredibly easy to do so that they can sign on as a developer, test, deploy, uh, and iterate and invent with us. I think just to cite an example of, of you know, a company I think is taking great advantage of the, of the macro trend uh, that's happening here with voice control, you have an Ecobee. This is a partner of the Alexa Fund that you know, we have contributed a round of funding that they did uh, where you know we contri we contribute to rounds of funding that where we think companies are leaning into voice because we think the, um, that that's the future. They were an early partner in the development of uh, smart home API technology for environmental control and helped uh, us understand their customers and the kind of control that they'd like to be able to afford through Alexa. So early adopters of smart home control and then you know, through that process, I think we're able to change their own roadmap to now incorporate and include Alexa in their own product. So they've moved on to become an AVS partner and an early excellent implementation of uh, an appliance that carries Alexa along with it. So 
you're in your dining room, uh, you can turn to your thermostat and talk to Alexa now. You know, Ecobee is a great example of uh, a company that's taking advantage of the macro trend and, you know, inventing and adopting and moving quickly. David Limp, Amazon's Senior Vice President of Devices and Services, told the New York Times that as of September 2017, Amazon has 5,000 employees working on Alexa-related products. So who wins in this space? I think you'd be crazy to bet against Google and Amazon. All of the big tech companies now focused on building operating systems have deep experience with operating systems and the infrastructure necessary to support thousands of developers. Microsoft and Samsung have the marketing wherewithal and distribution channels to really promote their offerings. But the companies with the greatest track record over the past five years in operating systems are Google and Apple with Android and iOS. Google in particular has been very aggressive in expanding their product line with the thermostat, smoke detectors, security cameras, and now the doorbell. Google has the resources, developers, and core expertise in building personalization tools to make Google Home as robust as the Android operating system it administers on your smartphone. If there were no Amazon, I'd put my money on Google. But there is an Amazon. And of all the companies I mentioned, I think Amazon will be the most motivated to win this space. Amazon has spent years perfecting its voice activation technology, and it has shown proficiency in developing its own line of hardware devices in the Kindle and Amazon Fire. But the real reason I'm excited to see how Amazon progresses with their smart home platform is because it feels like a Trojan horse for the company to anticipate what products the home needs to buy or have serviced, for which Amazon would like to be the merchant. This is the idea that if your light bulb burns out or your milk runs low, Amazon would like some device in the house to communicate with Amazon.com and order a replacement for that item. Tune into the next episode in the series about the future of the smart home, where I'll look at smart devices as the key to replenishment of staples within the smart home. I'll have a chance to talk with two of the most important companies that would benefit from this dynamic, Walmart and Amazon. If you'd like to learn more about the people featured in this podcast, go to predictingourfuture.com and don't forget to subscribe. This is Predicting Our Future.